The map is not the territory. It's one of those obvious and yet profound insights. You know, the thing we use to try and understand reality is not reality. I mean, it's true for maps and it's true for any model. I mean, it's true for org charts in companies, for instance. I mean, when I sketch out how Box of Crayons is structured, you know, I draw a box where Shannon, the CEO, is, and then I draw a diagram that puts her in one place, and then the leadership team that reports to her is structured and connected in different places, and then the people that they lead or perhaps influence, that goes elsewhere on the map. But it's a map. I mean, it tells me something. It tells me a lot. but it doesn't tell me everything. It doesn't, for instance, tell me the nuances of how resources get allocated and where money gets spent. It doesn't tell me about the health of the relationships and who's an ally and who's an enemy to make it melodramatic. It doesn't tell me who's rising and who's falling. So what's your map of the world? I mean, you have, you have many. What if you picked one for me? And what does that tell you? And what does it not Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Tiziana Cacharo is Professor of Organizational Behavior at the Rotman School of Management at the University of Toronto and co-author of the book, Power for All, How It Really Works and Why It's Everyone's Business. But like me, Tiziana is not a native Torontonian. I grew up in Italy, um, on Lake Como, just north of Milan, a beautiful spot that I appreciated only after I left. Upon returning to it, I was stunned at its spectacular uh, sights from my bedroom window. So leaving George Clooney and his family at Lake Como, Tiziana attended college to study economics and management in nearby Milan. It was there she got hooked. After a brief stint uh, as a junior researcher, teaching assistant, uh, servant um, that I had over at Bocconi, I decided to become good at this research thing. Uh, it became very fascinating to me to uncover uh, answers to puzzles that the world presented. These aren't puzzles like crossword or a brain teaser. These are bigger and messier and more complicated, more confusing, more human and more profound. Why is it that some, some people have a lot of influence and others not? Why is it that some people are very central to the action and others very peripheral? Uh, what are the connections linking all these people and why do they matter? From Italy then to the United States. Uh, so it was a big old jump from Milan to Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh, yes. Pennsylvania in the <laughs> 90s is not the Pittsburgh of today that has become right. quite hip because all of those fancy computer science, robotics, AI people, um, yeah. they flock to Pittsburgh, to Carnegie Mellon, and demand uh, a certain set of perks because they are used right. to the luxury at this point in their lives. So Pittsburgh has become different. But in my day, it wasn't like that. It was a lovely place for a graduate student to have a decent life and go to the symphony even and have wonderful music and jazz and such. But it was not as cosmopolitan as it is now. And then when I yeah. finished my PhD, there was in uh, um, organizational behavior, sociology, those, those topics. 
I got my first job at Harvard Business School, where um, I learned a lot. I met one fantastic people, uh, but also found that um, there's some price to pay in working in an institution of that status and elitism. And mm. um, in, in some ways, a, a place that doesn't necessarily bring out the best in a researcher. Uh, that was at least my my way to interface with them. Yes. And so after some level of um, adventures uh, over there, yeah. I moved to University of Toronto. And here I research uh, all the things that have to do with the, let's say the hidden side of what happens in life in organizations. Organizations all have certain designs um, but uh, yeah, the, yeah, basically the what's behind the curtain in organizations. Uh, people mm. are asked to work in certain ways with certain people. There are reporting lines, there are formal groups, there are divisions, functions, and all the yeah. necessary interactions. But in reality, people also have discretion in who they talk to, who they work with, who they hang out with. Right. And all of those networks that emerge uh, out of the, other people's choice, to some extent, have huge yeah. implications for how well people do, how well the organization functions or doesn't. And those are things that are very much my interest. And yeah. this book um, was really a reflection of that work and how it joins with the work of my wonderful co-author, Julie Batilana, in uncovering the inner workings of how yeah. things function or don't in organizational settings. Yeah, I've always thought there's a there's the formal org chart and then there's the invisible org chart and they're not the same. They're not the um, same. It turns out that the formal org chart explains about half of mm. the types of interactions that people have. So the other half yeah. uh, has a lot of action <laughs> in it. And if we don't understand yeah. it, then uh, you're really, really hard-pressed to... Uh, push forward with your initiatives, with your projects, with your goals, because you're missing half the action. Tiziana, do you remember the first moment you became interested in the stuff behind the obvious? You know, the, the power is hidden research. But I'm wondering when that seed got planted. Mm. Yeah, it's a good question because when I was an undergraduate student at Bocconi, I thought that I would become one of those McKinsey consultants. Um, you know, uh, variety was always important. Uh, those those firms uh, put you through projects that are in all kinds of industries and it becomes very interesting. Right. But um, I did get hooked uh, reading about um, two topics that were treated as some, somewhat disconnected, but I thought really spoke to each other, which were management in a crisis when everything right. falls apart and your points of reference are gone and you have to reinvent how you do things and um, heuristics and biases in decision-making. So uh, mm. individuals with their brain trying to process all the great amounts of information and data that come our way and we have to find shortcuts. We have to find ways to with withstand the onslaught of data right. from the world and, and how people go about it. And I thought that the, the intersection 
or those two phenomena when already we're under pressure as decision makers to handle all of these mm. abundance of, of information. And in a crisis, you have an emotional overload that makes yeah. it even harder. And so that's when I, I think it was the first time that I thought, okay, let, what's been done in linking those two? Uh, what right. is the state of knowledge in those things? Because if we understand how they come together, um, yeah. we will be able to shed light on this particular problem a lot better. And that was that was a root really of my, my brand of um, looking at the non-obvious, which is joining disciplines. Uh, in, in my neck of the woods, academics don't talk to each other very much. Uh, right. We are all in our silo, which is true of many professionals. I mean, I was talking with a, a physiotherapist the other day and who was bemoaning the great uh, fragmentation of knowledge about the human body um, mm -hmm. because everybody specializes in one little bit and the other bits <laughs> right. that who happen to be interconnected are not treated yes. as interconnected. So that has always been really hugely interesting to me, the interconnections of uh, right. how problems that we face at work, in our lives, um, are really related to many other things. And if yep. we understand those linkages, boy, are we ever going to be able to uh, shed light on things that are important to us that we miss sometimes. Because we're too yeah. narrow I, um, in our point of view. As an undergraduate, I studied both literature and law and tried to write my law thesis, bringing the study of the power in language to law. And it was my attempt to be cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary. Nobody knew what I was trying to do, including me. <laughs> it was, I was, this was in the 90s and I was just flapping around. But there is something about that cross-fertilization that's really interesting. Yeah, It's not easy to do, but there's a lot of bang for the buck when you manage yeah. to find those connections. Yeah. I wanted to ask you another question um, about your past, and it's this. Um, when did you, when do you remember first encountering power? in a real way for you, either as you stepping into power or you feeling excluded from power? Well, it all starts with family, uh, mm. as it often does. Um, and I grew up in Italy at a time when, and it's still somewhat true, um, men uh, wielded a lot more power than women. Uh, if you look at the gender equity index, uh, which measures all kinds of ways in which men and women are engaged in social, political, economic life in their country, mm. Italy does not fare all that well on their ranking. Uh, you have the usual Scandinavian countries up, up, up uh, in the ranking. <laughs> then, you know, you come- Those Nordics, uh, they always do well. <laughs> they always do well in this respect, and there, there are reasons for it. Um, then you come down a little bit and you find Canada around spot 20 or so. Then you come yeah. down a little bit more to like 25-ish and you find the US. And then you come all the way down to 60 and you find Italy. And mm -hmm. um, yes, there are more countries further down, certainly. But we don't shine in, in, in the sense of uh, what does it mean for the sexes to have equal opportunity, equal standing, yeah. equal voice. Um, and to this day, we're, you know, uh, we could do better. So I grew up in a more traditional family from that point of view. 
my mother has studied law like you, not interdisciplinarily like you, but she has studied right. law, and but never practiced because you know, she had my brother and then she had me, and the decision was made that my father would work and she would uh, stay at home. And um, I saw these dynamics, and they, they they instilled in me a deep sense of urgency in making myself independent, to mm. not be subjected to others in terms of right. my ability to choose for myself, my autonomy, my standing in the world. Um, that became very urgent to me. And it was the first uh, insight into um, a type of, of dislike that I have only mm. been able to pinpoint uh, recently, actually, after writing this book and after meditating on this book and thinking about what I, what I learned in the process of writing it, that I, I learned that um, I dislike being dominated and I dislike dominating equally. Right. Um, I find that um, not only my personal experience, because that is only informative to a point, uh, in the research that we have at all levels, from interpersonal relationships to uh, groups in an organizations to nations trying to cooperate or not, the best that humanity produces is in more mutually enhancing relationships where nobody has massive asymmetric power. When mm. you have a lot of imbalance in power, in the long run, bad things tend to happen. And so uh, this instinct that I had already quite young, that I didn't like to be bossed around, I didn't like, I didn't like the bullies that yeah. wanted to assert their dominance on the rest uh, of us. I, 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 just, I just, I never took them well. And I, there's a version of me that comes out with those people that you don't want to see. I know I, <laughs> I become a lot more um, determined and uh, aggressive even in response to people yeah. like that. But at the, at the same time, I never like to be, um, to have others under my thumb. It's a very uncomfortable right. feeling. And I think it's because, yeah, maybe I've always had this instinct that when you and I are dependent on each other, such that the input I get from you and the input you get from me allows us to do something together that we couldn't do alone, yeah. that's when dependence becomes a gift yeah. in its mutuality. And that has been really the where, where power has entered my life from early on. Part of the... the ongoing challenge of organizational life is that it is, I'm not sure if it's inherently hierarchical, but it is, most organizations have a default to hierarchy. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that I have my own business and do my own thing is I ha perhaps have a similar response to, look, I'm just not that good at having a boss. <laughs> I'm like, because I love it. I love a mutually dependent, a mutually enhancing, a mutually flourishing relationship, but the very nature of a of a uh, organization tends to set up hierarchy, and it tends to set up some people going, "I have power over you, or power with you." 
Oh, there's a big question here, <laughs> which is probably a, like a, 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 a it's worth writing a book about. But it's like, how do you? What have you learned about trying to find the balance between structure and autonomy? It is that the challenge of organizing. I mean, there are two, two really, two big challenges of organizing. One is to integrate specialized capabilities that uh, you put under the same umbrella for a reason. Uh, mm. Why would, do we have organizations in the first place? Because those individual skills alone cannot do this yeah. wonderful collective thing that we're trying to put together in this organized form. But the problem when you have very specialized skill sets is that people tend to gravitate toward people like themselves and work within their little group and have a really difficult time integrating. So that's challenge mm. number one. And again, the mutuality of dependence is when, is when you recognize how much you need one another that allows people to overcome those silos. And then the second challenge is the one you just described, the, the verticalization of organizations, mm. because you do need uh, some structure to your work, because otherwise it becomes so unwieldy and difficult to govern without mm -hmm. some direction. So direction is important to keep everybody focused on this big old goal that we're trying to pursue yeah. together. But it creates a hierarchy where some people have more power and others have less. Now, what do you do about it? One thing that has become uh, clear to me that is that the manager who has a really hard time distributing power further down or even horizontally often is animated by fear, a fear mm -hmm. of losing control over the situation. Sometimes the fear is justified. So if I uh, aim to give a lot of power to um, a subordinate or a peer that doesn't know what, doesn't have the capabilities to execute, yeah. we could all get in trouble. So there yeah. is something about empowerment in, in, uh, in, in intelligent ways. So you, you don't empower randomly. You empower oh, right. after you've given people the tools they need, the, the, the resources they require to, to get the job done, to be up, up to, to speed with what we're trying to accomplish. But there are many times when it's really insecurity about your position and how you're going to fare if you give a lot of credit to the people that worked with you if you let mm -hmm. them shine, if you let them be on stage, while maybe you are behind the behind the, the scenes, orchestrating, making it possible, but th there is a bit of concern that maybe I will lose. Mm. And, and it speaks to a fundamental misconception about power, that it's a zero-sum game. Right. If I give you some of my power, automatically I've lost power. But that is not how things really should be seen because we go back to the mutuality. Power is such that I could have something you need from me and therefore you depend on me and I can influence you. Yeah. But the vice versa could also be true. Mm. I could also at the same time be dependent on you for something. And in that case, we both have a degree of power over one another 
that allows us to be thoughtful about each other. Mm -hmm. Because one of the great, big, uh, un unwanted consequences of power is that when you feel like you're in, you, you've got it, you're in control, you have the resources, you have the opportunities, you have access and you control them, you easily end up feeling that you don't need other people. And when you mm. feel that you don't need them, you become inattentive to them. Mm. The research is quite clear that when I have power or feel like I have power, one of the more natural consequences will become a little bit self-focused because yes. why would I care about <laughs> people that on whom I don't depend? Yes. But maybe you do, darling, but you just you haven't realized <laughs> it or that you are, you are thinking short term you don't think about long-term consequences of your interdependence with these people. And yeah. so you need to always push back on power's mm. tendency to make us a little bit self-absorbed, a little egomaniacal, and yeah. related to a little bit overconfident. And yeah. then the decision-making mm. suffers. Because if I decided that I'm smart, I'm on it, I don't need your input anymore, yeah. I don't listen to you. And we yeah. see uh, leaders have, who have been successful, who have been sometimes fabulously successful, at some point decline because yeah. they stop uh, believing that others have something to say that they don't know already. They stop keeping an eye on the people around them to truly hear what they have to say about what you're doing and be open to potential being criticized, potential be receiving pushback. You, it takes a big person to be able to right. do that. But it also takes a, a structural recognition of interdependence. And I think that that's a solution, in, in my view, to the problem you, you raised. You need two things to handle the natural tendency of organization to become vertical and hierarchical. Yeah. You need design such that yeah. you allocate decision-making power, you allocate, you create structures that allow yeah. people to talk to one another, uh, share in the knowledge and, and all the beautiful things. And then you need personal development. Yeah. You need the individual who ends up understanding who they are, what they can contribute, being confident in their ability to contribute and mm. aware of their limitations all at the same time. The beautiful space between confidence and doubt Right. That we all have to learn to inhabit. And that's very much you developing as a person. So structure, design, and development have yes. to go hand and in hand. Being a big person. This, this idea of how do you be confident and humble at the same time and that, how they, that paradox can exist is so essential. It is. I, I, I'm so many questions I want to ask you, but I'm going to, resist because <laughs> I want to hear about the two pages that you've chosen for us. What have you picked for us, Tiziana? Well, you know, um, I picked something that speaks to what we've just discussed uh, mm. because I think you, you're not going to really find that space between confidence and humility easily if you don't grasp the ideas that these two pages represent. So I've, I've picked them um, from a book written by the Karmapa, uh, Ogien Trinli Dorji. This is a Buddhist um, that, that um, 
you know, he was guiding one of the groups uh, in Buddhism. And the book he wrote is titled, The Heart is Noble, Changing the World from the Inside Out. And uh, I felt a little bit uh, of trepidation choosing these mm. two pages because I'm not a Buddhist. I don't, right. I don't pretend to understand Buddhism. Um, because it requires a level of depth that I honestly, I don't think I can master. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a little too shallow uh, <laughs> to, to engage with Buddhism. But right. uh, these two pages represent some fundamentals about how to understand mm. power that um, I think are essential. And the, the, this uh, Karmapa is not the only one to have pointed them out, but in this in this text, he does it uh, pretty well, I thought. So, how, how did you come across this book? I mean, knowing that you're not a Buddhist, how did this come into your life? Well, you know, in writing Power for All, uh, Julie and I read an inordinate amount uh, because uh, a topic that we thought we had a decent knowledge about um, yeah. ended up being sprawling. We, which we yes. we knew, but uh, when you start to really get into it, everybody has written about power. Every mm -hmm. social scientist, every philosopher has written about power. And so in the philosophy side of the reading, uh, some of these ideas about interdependence yes. that uh, animate much of the, of the philosophy of this book and what I think it can give to people who read it. Um, Buddhism does an exceptionally a deep job of understanding the role of interdependence. Mm. And, it, and it, it was picked up by uh, thinkers along the way. Um, some of the ideas that I'm going to read uh, can be found in texts and uh, approaches from uh, pol politicians, from activists, yeah. from writers, poets, uh, and leaders of different kinds. So I ended up, it was like a click here and click there and click some more <laughs> and read this book that references this other book. And I ended up with this book. Yes. And I thought Brilliant. it condensed uh, these ideas uh, particularly well. I'm excited to hear these two pages. So over to you. How do you relate to this infinite ground of possibility that your life is built on? How can you create a meaningful life within whatever shifting circumstances you find yourself? Buddhist thought devotes a great deal of attention to these questions. The view that life holds infinite possibility is explored using the concepts of interdependence and emptiness. When you first hear the term emptiness, you might think this suggests nothingness or void, but actually emptiness should remind us that nothing exists in a vacuum. Everything is embedded within a context, a complex set of circumstances. These contexts themselves are endlessly shifting. When we say that things are empty, we mean they lack any independent existence outside of these changing contexts. Because everything and everyone is empty in the sense they're capable of endless adaptation. We ourselves have the basic flexibility to adapt to anything and to become anything. Because of this, we should not mistake emptiness for nothingness. On the contrary, emptiness is full of potency. 
understood correctly, emptiness inspires optimism rather than pessimism because it reminds us of the boundless range of possibilities of who we can become and how we can live. Interdependence and emptiness show us that there are no fixed starting points. We can start from nothing. Whatever we have, wherever we are, that is the place we can start from. Many people have the idea that they lack what they need in order to start working toward their dreams. They feel they do not have enough power or they do not have enough money, but they should know that at any point is the right point. This is the perspective that emptiness opens up. We can start from zero. Anything can come into being because there is no fixed way for things to be. It all depends on the conditions that come together. But this fact that anything is possible does not imply that life is random or haphazard. We can make anything happen, but we can only do so by bringing together the necessary conditions. This is where the concept of emptiness and interdependence come together. Every person, place, and thing is entirely dependent on others, other people, and other things as a necessary condition for its existence. For example, we are alive now because we are enjoying the right conditions for our survival. We are alive because of the countless meals we have eaten during our life, because the sun shines on the earth and the clouds bring rain, crops can grow. Someone tends to the crops and harvests them. Someone else brings them to market, and yet another person makes a meal from them that we can eat. Each time this process is repeated, the interdependence of our lives links us with more and more people and with more and more rays of sun and drops of rain. Ultimately, there is nothing and no one with whom we cannot connect. The Buddha coined the term interdependence to describe the state of profound connectedness. Interdependence is the nature of reality. It is the nature of human life, of all things and of all situations. We are all linked and we all serve as conditions affecting each other. Amid all the conditions that affect us, in fact, the choices we ourselves make and the steps we take are among the most important conditions that affect what arises from our actions. If we act constructively, what comes into being is constructive. If we act destructively, what results is destructive and harmful. Everything is possible, but also everything we do matters because the effects of our actions reach far beyond ourselves. For that reason, living in a world of interdependence has very specific implications for us. It means our actions affect others. It makes us all responsible for one another. That was lovely. Thank you. Thank you. What, um, what feels like the deep truth at the heart of this text? There are um, a few. One is that when people like Julie and me say, dare say, power for all, we um, tap into one of the ideas from this text that we 
can do a lot, even when mm. we start from very little or nothing at all. And um, the encouragement of this text is for people to recognize that even when we face really difficult circumstances, we can take steps and make choices that lead us in a certain direction. We are not completely aimless, even when we feel we're very disadvantaged. Mm-hmm. This is not to, re- to deny the fact that power is unevenly distributed. Mm-hmm. This is not to deny that some people have way more than we might. But it is to say that if you recognize how power functions and your role in it, you can take steps that allow your condition to lead us in a direction you find constructive. That's the right. truth number one. Yep. The second one that I think is absolutely essential is this notion that the world would be infinitely better if we were all more aware of how interdependent we are, not mm. only on each other, but on every element of our environment. Uh, we, during the pandemic, we had glimpses of greatest, a greater awareness of interdependence where people were saying, well, we, we cannot just vaccinate people in one country or the wealthy countries if we don't vaccinate everyone. Uh, right. This will come back to haunt us for a long time, as opposed to being managed uh, to not only ensure the survival of of many more, but also to avoid consequences for us. So there's a selfish and an altruistic component to this. And um, this is true in organizations. All of those people that we were mentioning before, they have a hard time collaborating horizontally. They have a hard time Uh, crossing vertical boundaries would do so way better if they recognized how much they need each other and how much my contributions affect you and yours affect me. And um, I found this, this text representative of a logic with which we could um, conduct ourselves that um, inspires uh, many Uh, I could add to this what Martin Luther King said about the same basic idea. He said, all life is interrelated. We are all caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied Mm. in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects (laughs) one directly affects all indirectly. And he said this in the context of civil rights. Yes. This notion that, you know, you think as a member of uh, the white community that maybe you'll be better off if you keep the black community down. Again, if I hoard the power Mm. and I, you know, dangle it uh, over your head. But... An awareness of interdependence would tell you that that is just not true because in the long run, a system in which all who have contributions to make are allowed to make them, have a chance to make them, will be a more prosperous system 
will be a system with greater well-being of all involved. So the long-term rewards a more interdependent reality. Um, so we find we find these ideas in many different places. I I want I wanted I ran into recently is the great poet Jane Hirschfeld that I didn't mm-hmm. really know very well. And um I hear I heard in an interview, and she says something along these lines. She said, you know, it is in the in the very bone marrow of poetry and all art to work through a vocabulary of connection and recognition right. of the profound interdependence and interconnection of everything. These are people that uh, think right. very well about the human condition and the fact that they all converge mm. around these ideas. And then in my work as an organizational behavior researcher, I find the repercussions in how we run organizations and how managers conduct themselves and how leaders lead. Yeah. I find it uh, quite compelling that we should be pay yeah. more attention. I, f- I find myself kind of violently agreeing with all of this because, you know, who am I to like disagree with Martin Luther King amongst others um, or the Buddha? And I also um, experience a, um, a biological imperative that makes this feel hard. You know, um, we have Dunbar's number saying we've got about 150 people who we can hold as friends. Um, that's our tribe. And after that, and there's something deep, deeply um, in our bones around it's us and them. I've got my 150 people as my tribe and I've got those other people. And connected to that or related to it in some way is what does it mean to give up power? Like for somebody like me who holds a lot of power because I've been dealt all sorts of cards and I've played all sorts of games and won enough of them that I now have power in, in many ways. Um, and if I ask myself, so how do I give that up? How do I learn how to give that up? Um, I've got a bunch of things that go, look, in theory, I am all for interdependence and mutuality and connection and in practice. I'm a little more selfish about that. And I'm a little bit me versus them. Yeah. Can you speak to some of that? Yes, and I'm I'm glad you raised uh, this other side. Uh, we do all have a dark side. Uh, even I, you know, I bring the, these texts <laughs> to you, and um, do so with trepidation, partly because I know I'm not that good, yeah. <laughs> and I fall into those uh, traps uh, as much as anyone. Uh, but here's what I would would say. You never give up power. Never. Um, Sharing power doesn't mean giving up power. It means empowering others. Uh, Toni Morrison said it best. When you have some power, your job is to empower someone else. She didn't say give your power away to someone. She said empower someone. Why would you want to do that? Because the evidence we have is that when you are trying to accomplish a goal that requires collective contributions. So if I'm on my own and all I want to do is a individual contribution type task, it doesn't matter. Power doesn't matter because I'm not interdependent. I'm doing my Mm -hmm. thing. Okay. 
I'm talking about all the other situations in which you just cannot do it alone, no matter what, right. no matter how, how confident, how competent you are, you just can't. So what happens in those contexts, which are 95% of all yeah. tasks that we try to accomplish, <laughs> yeah. is that the secret to collective performance and therefore leadership performance, because mm. if you're leading me and I do well, you do well also. Yeah. Uh, the evidence is that the leader who expresses enough humility and distributes speaking time and is alert to the emotions that the people around them are feeling is the leader that has the highest team performance right. and team engagement and a sense of satisfaction in the work and yeah. desire to stay instead of leaving. Mm -hmm. And economic uh, kind of financial performance. I mean, all the things that we supposedly want yeah. tend to come along with uh, a style of power sharing that yeah. makes it possible for all these people to contribute their best because that's a whole idea. If I cannot do it alone and I need the inputs of all these other folks, don't I want them to be able to contribute it? Of course I do. But the fear of losing control, losing power, is what prevents many from doing this kind of power sharing that eventually, down the line, benefits them as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, if known for anything, known for a book called The Coaching Habit. Um, and it's about how do you unweird coaching so managers and leaders can stay curious longer. And... Part of what I'm proud about with that book is I think it is a bit subversive because it actually disrupts hierarchy. It moves people away from I'm telling you what to do to I'm asking you a question and handing you responsibility for figuring this out and coming up with ideas. And I do feel that part of the, re part of the resistance to coaching or being more coach-like as a manager or a leader or as anybody in an organization isn't the, I don't know what questions to ask. It's I'm losing control. <laughs> I'm losing status. I'm losing authority. I'm losing power. Who do I need to become to be able to move from certainty to ambiguity? You need to become very aware and proud of the competencies you do have and mm. the values you live up to, to remind you that you are a good person, mm -hmm. despite the dark side <laughs> that does creep up sometimes with a vengeance mm -hmm. and makes us really small, really small people. When we cling on, our group uh, in opposition to the others, when right. we, the only way that we can feel good about ourselves is to put other people, other people down, mm -hmm. that's when the, the dark side takes over. But you can, you can push the dark side away when you 
acquire competencies that allow you to make contributions, you have to have something to offer, you know. Right. Otherwise, you don't feel good about yourself. And then you really have to take refuge in all these other twisted ways to lift yourself <laughs> up that are a disaster yeah. for everybody, including you, because they're not sustainable. They're not real. It's all a, a superficial um, yeah. approach to, to making, to protect yourself. But deep inside, you, you don't feel that you have goodness. Um, I'll give an example that I, that I love yeah. when I say, just remind yourself of the good in you so that right. you will be able to appreciate the good in others without mm. fearing that they're going to take over because they're better than you. Uh, this is right. a study that was run at INSEAD, which is a business school uh, outside of Paris, but, yeah. where for a long time, the MBA uh, class had a great gap between male and female students. This was an environment with uh, more men than women, a little more macho culturally. And the women were not doing as well, even though they were selected in very similar ways uh, mm. compared to the guys. And they tried a bunch of things, nothing worked. And until one of the researchers there ran an, an experiment, really, where you know, he randomly assigned the students to uh, participate in a self-affirmation exercise in which you're given a list of personal values that might be relevant to you. Not professional, personal. Yeah. And um, pick two and describe an example of how you have lived up to those values. And they did this intervention twice in the 12-month MBA. And the great gap disappeared. Wow. Why? Well, you, you've not told these women that uh, they are great at finance, that they can run um, ops, like not tomorrow, none of that. Yeah. You just reminded them of the depths of their values and, and how mm. they live their life accordingly. And that was enough to give them that confidence to raise their hand in class and say, I have a comment to make, and I'm not going to second yeah. guess my competence. I'm not going to second guess whether I have the standing to be able yeah. to participate. I'm just going to do it. And you liberate yourself from this insecurity, mm. this doubt. So that, I think, is what needs to happen, that uh, you grow to that level of confidence that allows you mm. to do the things that we just discussed, to share the power. I absolutely agree about this, build your capacity, be a bigger person, connect to your values. And I'm also curious about the tension between our own individual responsibility to become that bigger person, to you know avoid the smaller person, and the influence of our organizational structures and rhythms around us. You know, that quote from Churchill, we shape our buildings thereafter, they shape us. Um, so often our behavior is deeply influenced by the visible and invisible structures around us. Um, it's not always possible just to kind of go, how do I want to behave in this moment? You're swimming in water yeah. <laughs> and that water has a current to it. How do you find that balance between what the organization nudges you towards and at the same time, who you're striving to be as an individual. 
we are all the result of uh, context, as the, the two mm-hmm. pages exactly. uh, told yeah. us very, very clearly. And uh, in many ways, the context has much more impact on our behavior than our individual choices. Yeah. Um, the, we lean on the individual choices because the, those are the choices we have, right? right. So that they, they feel right. like they're within our control. But the structures around us, both the organizational structures and the systemic, you know, the system of government, the education mm-hmm. system, the taxation system, all of those things shape us, shape all the people around us. And so you have to be, one, very aware of how those influences manifest themselves. And we do that in the book. Uh, Power for All was really written with the idea of uh, linking individual behavior, individual choice, individual psychology to the big macro forces that really determine who we are. But I would say that if you become aware of them, then you become the type of enlightened citizen that makes choices about what kind of system do I want to be in? Mm-hmm. What kind mm-hmm. of organization do I want to work for? Yeah. They collectively have impact. The Scandinavian countries are not at the top of the gender equity index randomly, you know? Right. This was yeah. not a particularly advanced uh, society up until the mid-1800s. But very radical choices about primarily education of the masses, so to speak, of all the people Mm -hmm. that had been excluded from a certain way of understanding the world, really changed uh, people's uh, connection with what does it mean to participate in our governing of ourselves and our communities? What does it mean to be engaged as a citizen? What does it mean to uh, maybe contribute to the system right. in more hefty ways? It might feel annoying in the moment when you're paying the taxes. <laughs> yeah. But then down the line, they create a society where more people can thrive, where more people can participate mm. and contribute, and people are happier and less threatened, and uh, they can play music, and they can do all the <laughs> things. Now, this is not to say that those societies are perfect because they're not. No society is. And they have their, their share of trouble with us and them. And what does it mean to be interdependent with people that look like me versus people that don't? Of course, yeah. uh, you'd always have that, the dark side, you know, <laughs> yeah. interfering with our, with our goodness, so to speak. But... Mm-hmm. You're right that we have to understand the the whole of the organization where we are. And I would just take a moment to encourage any person who works in a larger organization where they don't determine the cultural values, they don't determine the structural choices, but they have the little sphere of influence. And uh, you can start in that sphere of influence, which could be as simple as how do you treat the folks that work for you? How do you treat the people that work with you? What kind of voice do you allow them? Uh, yeah. Are you able to take uh, criticism? Uh, do you create what my friend Amy Edmondson calls psychological safety? That's right. Uh, you can start with your own little team. It could be two people. It could be yeah. 20. 
you don't have to wait around for the entire organization to become enlightened because you may never right. do that. And, and then you can choose organization. organization. Subcultures. Yeah. You can choose. Um, I was yeah. working with a, a company that produces plastics. And what I heard from the leadership of this company is that they are having a non-trivial amount of trouble attracting young people who want to see what is the right. sustainability strategy of this company. Before I put my talent and my potential yeah. into you, I want to know what it's going to be used for. That's an individual mm -hmm. choice. Now, you may not be super easy to find environments that make you um, proud of the work you do, but if you have yeah. all of these people that keep pushing in a certain direction, at some point it becomes harder for organizations, governments to ignore all of the above, right? And uh, that's my hope that uh, mm -hmm. uh, people will, will learn that they can take action. Power for all means not that you can rule the world. It means right. that you can maybe join forces with others to make a dent and not accept it uh, thoughtlessly, even if you recognize that the system, the structure is way more impactful than your own individual choices. Absolutely, yeah. it is. There are those, those powers out there that are really outweigh ours. But yes. we're not completely helpless. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. I have a final question for you. What needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me? Probably um, acknowledging that um, power uh, has a bad rap and um, sometimes it makes people very uncomfortable to even admit that they want it. Mm -hmm. mm. And they're right. A power can <laughs> become manipulative, coercive, all the bad things. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Indeed, Lord Acton yeah. had it right uh, from the get-go, and there's a reason why uh, folks recoil sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, it speaks also to this dark side that you uh, brought up rightfully that yes. is always within us. But what we need to say very explicitly is that a, a more uh, complete view of power understands it as energy. Mm. And energy can be used to build or to destroy. It always has, always will. And so it is really mu very much up to us to make choices accordingly, uh, even while you recognize that uh, you're just one person. But uh, that interdependence uh, with others and the fact that we start from zero, we start empty and it doesn't matter the starting point that we can still build from there should give us optimism as uh, the Karmapa told us at the start of our conversation. A friend of mine in Oxford was doing a PhD on palimpsests. I know, I didn't know what that was either, but it's a term for manuscripts and other things that have been reused but where you can still see there are visible traces of an earlier form so for a manuscript it's a piece of parchment reused so that you can still make out what was written on it before for a city like london say it's the traces of roman londinium under the modern urban plan a palimpsest 
I'm not even sure how to pronounce it properly. Um, the last letters are S-E-S-T. <laughs> Cest, I guess, palimpsest. Anyway, <laughs> enough of pronunciation. This idea reminds me of Tiziana looking for and then linking the non-obvious. I mean, that's helpful in uncovering insights about how power works, as we heard in the conversation. But there's also something here for me about how we might show up for one another at a human level in this quest we have for, and again, words from the interview, interconnectedness and mutuality. Linking the non-obvious. I mean, I'm trying to do it right now, so I'm grasping a little bit. It's just a faint idea rather than a certain one. But if you show up, if both of you, you and that other person, both show up with your expertise and your certainty and your control, you're both holding status. You're two walled castles. But if you're curious about the other, then you're finding links between the non-obvious. You're building bridges. I mean, one of my favorite icebreaker games is to pair people up and ask, what's the least likely thing that you have in common? It's asking them to link the non-obvious, and when they make that connection, magic can happen. There are two interviews that I'd like to suggest that go very nicely with this one. Uh, one with Matthew Barzen, uh, number 82, What to Do with Power, and for obvious reasons. And then uh, number 36 with my friend Pame Basse, uh, Chief Learning Officer at Kraft Heinz, um, How to Practice Understanding. I think you can see how those two will fit really nicely with this conversation with uh, Tiziana. If you want to connect with her, well, honestly, the simplest way to do it is Google her name. You'll see that in, in the show notes. Um, or Google the name of her book, Power for All. You'll certainly find her on LinkedIn. Thank you for loving the show and listening to the show and listening all the way to an episode and reviewing it and starring it and referring it to people who might enjoy the, the interview. Um, I appreciate your support and encouragement. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>